Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called Even If the Criticism is True. Thanks for coming back to listen to another episode. Hopefully you caught the reference in the title. It is a callback to a, an interview that Elder Dallin H. Oaks, pardon me, President Dallin H. Oaks, is quoted to have said in an interview on PBS in it for a documentary called The Mormons. And the full quote in that documentary is, It is wrong to criticize the leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. Now, today, I want to examine that phrase a little bit and read over some of the justification that Elder Oaks gave to that talk. And then I want to juxtapose it with a very uncomfortable implication of this teaching. So thanks for coming back to listen to another episode. I hope that uh, I hope that you enjoy the podcast. I hope that you enjoy listening listening to these quick episodes about a wide variety of subjects. I am thankful for all of the listeners. I'm thankful for you guys. I'm grateful that you guys reach out and 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 share your thoughts with me. You guys are awesome. So the the idea for this episode came to me as I was listening to an episode of Mormonism Live. This was back in September, and I can't recall the episode number. At the time, I wrote down some thoughts and actually sent them off to RFM because was bouncing the idea with him. And this idea stuck out to me. The particular episode, I can't recall the name, but they were talking about mission presidents and impropriety and how the church handled that impropriety. During their discussion, this idea came to my head that there's a really uncomfortable implication of this teaching that Elder Oaks has here. So let's jump right in. So as I said at the outset, the original quote, it's wrong to criticize the leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true comes from a PBS documentary called The Mormons. It aired April 30th of 2007 as a part of uh, the American Experience series that they were putting on. Now, the, the actual quote that was aired in this episode appears to come from an interview he gave in 1986. In this documentary, The Mormons, President Dallin H. Oaks has a conversation with a Helen Whitney, and he expounds a little bit more about what he meant by this phrase. So I'm going to read both what Helen said and what uh, Dallin said to, to put it all in, into context. So Helen says, you used an interesting phrase. Not everything that's, use, that's true is useful, 
Could you develop that as someone who's a scholar and trying to encourage deep searching? Dallin says, The talk where I gave that was a talk on reading church history. That was the title of the talk. And in the course of that talk, I said many things about being skeptical in your reading and looking for bias and looking for context and a lot of things that were in that perspective. But I said two things in it, and the newspapers and anybody who ever referred to the talk only referred to those two things. One is the one you cite, not everything that's true is useful, and that meant was useful to say or to publish, and you tell newspapers anytime, media people, that they can't publish something, they'll strap on the armor and come out to slay you. At this point, he laughs in the interview. He continues on and says, I also said something else that has excited people, that it's wrong to criticize the leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true, because it diminishes their effectiveness as a servant of the Lord. One can work to correct them by some other means, but don't go about saying that they have misbehaved when they were younger or whatever. Well, of course, that sounds like religious censorship also. But not everything that's true is useful. I am a lawyer, and I hear something from a client. It's true, but I'll be disciplined professionally if I share it because it's part of the attorney-client privilege. There's a husband-wife privilege. There's a priest-penitent privilege, and so on. That's an illustration of the fact that not everything that's true is useful and to be shared. He goes on, he says, In relation to history, I was speaking in that talk for the benefit of those that write history. In the course of writing history, I said that people ought to be careful in what they publish because not everything that's true is useful. See a person in context. Don't depreciate their effectiveness in one area because they have misbehavior in another area, especially from their youth. I think that's the spirit of that. I think I'm not talking necessarily just about Mormon history. I'm talking about George Washington or any other case. If he had an affair with a girl when he was a teenager, I don't need to read that when I'm trying to read a biography of the founding father of our nation. Now, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack with this, and I have, I have a lot of things that I want to bring up. Before I get to the, the subject that, I, that I'll spend the majority of my time on here, I just want to say I disagree with him. I disagree with him completely. And here's why I think that this is wrong. I think the audience is important to understand when you're writing history or talking about history. But when we censor it like this, it's not helpful and it's not useful. For example, when we look at a, at a character, at a person such as Christopher Columbus, it's important to recognize the things that he did, such as sailing across the ocean blue. But when we ignore all the atrocities that he did, we don't get a full picture of him as a person. And we could say the same thing about the Founding Fathers. Elder Oaks mentions impropriety in their youth, but he doesn't cite the fact that many of them were slave owners. When you do any real digging into most people in history, you will find many skeletons in their closet. That doesn't mean we should teach children about them. And frankly, if you're teaching children about church history, I think it's fine to gloss over the things that are uncomfortable. 
But when you're teaching adults the same curated version of historical events, I don't think that's helpful. The problem with this is that there's never, and this is a criticism of, of, I guess, the American education system, if you will. But the way that history is presented is often whitewashed. And anything uncomfortable or that portrays our nation or our people in a bad light is disregarded. And I don't think that's helpful. If we can't recognize the things that we did wrong in the past, how can we make a better world for our children in the future? I'll uh, step down from my little pedestal there and I'll, uh, I'll get back onto the subject at hand. Now, I want to go back to this this important phrase that Elder Oaks said here because I think it has some really bad implications. And I'll read it again. Elder Oaks says, It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true, because it diminishes their effectiveness as a servant of the Lord. So he gives the motive there. The motive that you're not allowed to criticize a leader is because it it makes it so that they can't serve the Lord effectively. And the problem I see with this is that if the members of the church, if the Latter-day Saints, can't call out the leadership when they're doing something wrong, when can they? If God wants the membership to keep quiet when a church leader is doing something bad, that's as if God is condoning this bad behavior in order to bring about good in the world. Or he is looking past improprieties in order to bring about his work. The implication of this is very uncomfortable. If a believer that's listening out there has a different idea or a different explanation for this, I would love to hear it. Because as I am reading this, and as I am trying to understand what's being taught, that is the conclusion that I make. This is saying that whatever the calling is that the person has is more important than the mistakes that they've made. In practice, this is not okay. Because we have heard countless examples of bishops and stake presidents and mission presidents committing all sorts of vile acts across the wide spectrum. I, you know, I could cite examples, but I think if you go back and listen to some of the Mormonism Live episodes, it was specifically episode 39, when, Mormon, when mission presidents behave badly. And he gives some great examples of some of the upper leadership of the church behaving very poorly, and then the way that the church as a whole obfuscated it and hid these things from the membership. Now, Elder Oaks or President Oaks in this doesn't give an example of what these things might be. So maybe he's talking about, and this, this I'll, I'll concede, maybe he's specifically referring to past improprieties of these leaders. But there is no distinction given anywhere that there's ever a time where it's okay to criticize the leadership of the church. And so the way I read this is that God must condone these acts and these vile behaviors because it brings forth some greater good. I don't like this teaching 
I think that they need to present a channel for people to voice complaints about the leadership. Because without it, there is no distinction between past improprieties of the leaders and current improprieties. There is never a time where it's okay to criticize the leaders of the church. So if someone wants to read this and make the argument that he was talking about past improprieties, the question I have, as I just said, is when is it ever okay to criticize the leaders of the church? When? Because if there's not a way to criticize the leaders, then based on this, based on Elder Oaks's explanation here, God is condoning these behaviors, these vile behaviors, because it brings out some greater good for the church. And to me, that's not an implication I'm okay with. If you go back and listen to that episode of Mormonism Live, or frankly listen to any Mormon Stories podcast where they talk about ecclesiastical abuse, go and listen to the stories of people that have been harmed by the institution. And tell them, look at these people, and in your mind, think of this response of Elder Oaks. You can't criticize them because it will diminish their, their effectiveness as a servant of the Lord. For the cases, and I may get graphic here, but for the cases of ecclesiastical abuse, sexual abuse, whatever it is, if this is their motive, that, that the criticism isn't okay because it diminishes their effectiveness as a servant of the Lord, it, it's laughable. It is laughable that that is an explanation that is presented as being valid for, a, for any situation like this. Elder Oaks says one can work to correct them by some other means, but then he never presents what that other means might be. So here's what I'm asking, and I, I want to be wrong about this. What is that other channel? How can the members of the church hold the leaders accountable when they make mistakes? This question isn't directed so much at, at the normal audience, but if there is a member of the Strengthening Church Members Committee out there, Ask it up the chain. I want to know. And I want there to be a good answer for this. How can someone properly criticize a leader of the church when they are making an egregious mistake? What is the proper channel? And don't tell me it's in the church handbook of instructions because the lay members of the church do not read that. They do not have access to that. The only message they're getting is that it's not okay to criticize. And I, I want to be wrong because I have people that I love that are part of this organization. Family, friends, brothers, sisters, nieces and nephews. People that I am fairly certain will spend their rest of their lives as Latter-day Saints. And what I want for them is for the organization to be healthier. I want these changes for the people that I love. So please, I would love to hear what channels are open to the members of the church in a scenario like this. 
where there is an egregious misbehavior. Because presently there's nothing. And that is not acceptable. Wherever we find ourselves on the belief spectrum, from non-belief all the way to belief, I hope that we can think critically about the things that are being taught to us. That we can listen to them and understand the implications of what's being said. Push the ideas to their limits. Do your best to analyze and understand exactly what is being taught and what the implications and consequences of those teachings might be. From whatever the source, whatever the source might be. And I am not above such scrutiny. If there's something that I've said that doesn't resonate with you or you think might be completely wrong, call me out on it. I've been called out before and I've made corrections where, where needed. My path since leaving the Mormon faith tradition has been a path of self-improvement, of enlightenment. So with that, I need to keep in mind that I am often wrong. And not only am I often wrong, when I am the most wrong, I don't know it. And I don't know the things that I'm mistaken about. And that's the biggest lesson I took from my religious deconstruction. Anyway, I'm ranting. Sorry about that. I focused on some of the more serious accusations, but there also needs to be a channel for some of the smaller problems. Any abuse of power, no matter how big or small, there needs to be a way to criticize, to lodge a complaint. I'm going to jump back to his quote here for just a sec. There's a few other things that he said in there that I, I just touch base on and try and understand what he's saying a little bit better. So he, he makes this connection between criticizing the leader of a church and, and criticizing uh, historical figures. And I think at least the connection I'm making is the criticisms that people um, have against uh, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and uh, early church leaders. So here's, uh, I'll read this part of his, uh, of his response again. In the course of writing history, I said that people ought to be careful in what they publish because not everything that's true is useful. See a person in context. Don't depreciate their effectiveness in one area because they have some misbehavior in another, especially from their youth. I just a little bit of this earlier, but I, I've got one more comment that I want to say. He says to see a person in context. Don't depreciate their effectiveness in one area because of some misbehaviors in another. He's not using the word context correctly here. If you present a historical figure without the facts about the type of person that they were, you're presenting them out of context. So when he says, see a person in context, and then don't say everything about the person, He's contradicting himself in the very next sentence. When you hide, when you hide the facts about an event or a person, you are taking them out of context. If we ignore the things that were going on around Joseph Smith in his life, and we simply read what was written in the Doctrine and Covenants, that is taking it out of context. In the headings of each of, these, each of those chapters, they present 
although whitewashed and with much missing, they present what was happening historically to give context to those scriptures. When we have a more full picture of a person, we get a better understanding for who they were. He's promoting this idea that the best way to learn history is by ignoring anything that's uncomfortable. And that's not okay. That's not right. There's not a single person that has ever lived that didn't make a mistake or doesn't have some sort of choice they've made that they regret. This idea he's presenting is that if you know about the skeletons in someone's closet, then it will depreciate their effectiveness as a servant of the Lord. I guess, I guess the question I would ask is, doesn't the church believe in repentance and changing to become a better person? Isn't that part of the process that's, that's in the plan of salvation that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints presents? I think what he's arguing for here doesn't have much to do with the everyday practice of the faith. In local wards and stake presidencies, the membership doesn't know what type of person these, these leaders were when they were kids. The only people being criticized for, makes, for mistakes they made while in their youth, if you will, are Joseph Smith and early leaders of the church. Joseph Smith for his money digging, if you will, and glass looking. What he's trying to do here is to brush aside the complaints against Joseph Smith before he was a prophet. But it has nothing to do with, with the current practices of the church. I know I'm going out of order, but I wanted to end on, on, this, um, on this paragraph here. So this happened, this was right before the one I was just talking about. President Oaks here sounds a bit like a lawyer when he's talking here. And I'll read it again and then I'll, I'll say some of my thoughts on it. But not everything that's true is useful. I am a lawyer and I hear something from a client. It's true, but I'll be disciplined professionally if I share it because it's part of the attorney-client privilege. There's a husband-wife privilege. There's a priest-penitent privilege. And so on. That's an illustration of the fact that not everything that's true is useful to be shared. The inference that I gather from this is that there's also a prophet-church privilege. These, these relationships that he's citing here, attorney-client it's where the client can say something to the attorney, but the, the attorney is obligated to not say anything. Husband-wife privilege, um, you could say spouse privilege, whatever, whatever, um, whatever the relationship is. With your spouse or partner, you're going to be more open and share things that you might not share with other people. And that's healthy. That's fine. So these, these relationships he's describing are good. But then what he's saying here, it's not an implication that there's a prophet and congregation privilege or a seminary teacher and seminary student privilege. The privilege is between the church institution and the prophet. It's between the church institution and the seminary teacher. 
because the church is an institution and the history of the church, those are things that are shared with these leaders that these leaders know, but they don't share with the congregation. And he, he uses this example that not everything that's true is useful to be shared. This word here that he says, useful to be shared, don't like that either. It means that the attorney has to keep the secret that the client shared with him. So if he, if he confesses to the attorney, this becomes a secret that the attorney can then not share in the courtroom. And the reason I'm using this example is because there are clear, the, the relationships I'm trying to say is, in this example, the church is that client that has made mistakes. And the prophets and leaders are the lawyers, literally in most cases. This attorney-client privilege is between the lawyers of the church and the church and its uncomfortable history. <laughs> I don't think there's a positive way to spin this idea, but he's saying it as if it's normal and okay. Examples of this are when the other versions of the First Vision account get absconded away and hidden in vaults for years. This is that attorney-client privilege. This is that damning evidence that the lawyers know about that they keep from the general public. If we're using this example that he gave, the institution of the church is the client that the prophets are protecting. And the organization, if it's more concerned with protecting itself than protecting its members, then it is not a healthy organization. And that, that has been the point of this episode. The leadership is more concerned with protecting itself than protecting the members. There is no way to criticize, because if you can criticize, then you're attacking the organization. Something needs to change. Because until it does, this is not a church for the benefit of the people. The leadership are benefiting the organization. Now, that's a blanket statement, and I will, I will put a stipulation on that. On a local level, there are so many good people helping each other, working together. And for the most part, the people that practice this on a daily basis live good and happy lives. You can live a good life as a Latter-day Saint. But you can't have a healthy relationship with the organization. Because they don't engender that sort of behavior. And for me, on the outside, looking in, I'm not going to be able to make a change like that. I know that I have many listeners who are nuanced and still participate. It's going to be up to you guys to make these sort of changes. It's going to take courageous members of the church criticizing the leadership when they make mistakes. Standing against the establishment. Calling them out when they do something wrong. That is what is going to cause these changes to happen. Because if we, if we continue on as we are, if the, if the membership continues to follow these unhealthy guidance, then changes will never happen. 
maybe that's a bleak way to end the episode. So let me share something fun. <laughs> this episode is going to come out on the week of Thanksgiving. I'm recording it a little bit earlier than that. I'm going to end by saying something that I am grateful for. The expression of gratitude is very important. I am grateful for the process of religious deconstruction that I have gone through. When I think back at the person that I was a handful of years ago and, the, and compare that man to the man I am today, it is night and day. There are so many differences between me and who I was just a few years ago. And every single one of those differences is an improvement. An improvement on my mental health, an improvement on my relationship with my wife, an improvement on the relationship with my family, frankly. And I haven't talked too in depth about that, but I am, I am very introverted and I don't open up very much to very many people in my life. And me leaving the church has put me in a position where I have to open up a little bit more with my family. It's been uncomfortable and the reception has not always been great. That is an understatement, if uh, you couldn't tell. <laughs> but this transition has been one of the best things to happen to me, but also one of the hardest. And I am grateful for it. I am happy with the person that I've become today. And that couldn't have happened without this faith transition. There was a recent post on TikTok that I, I really liked. A uh, TikToker on there on the Exmo side of, of TikTok asked the question whether or not someone would want to go back in time knowing everything they know about the church now and then live through their life again. And, and as I thought about that, there are so many decisions that I made now that I look back now and think were the wrong decisions, but they led me to the person that I am today. And if I went back knowing everything I know now, I would make different decisions and I would be a different person. And maybe that person is, would be a better person than I am today, or maybe a worse one. I, I don't know, but I'm happy with who I am. And I'm grateful for these changes that I've gone through. Think about what you're grateful for this week. Think about the things that have had an impact on your life, for better or worse. One last thing I'll say about the tradition of Thanksgiving as celebrated in the United States. This year, I recommend you look up the man named Mazazoet and find out what role he played in the survival of those early settlers. And the next thing I'll recommend you looking up is whether or not the pilgrims, they didn't refer to themselves as pilgrims, but whether or not they actually invited the Native Americans to that first meal or not. The real story is very interesting. And it marked the beginning of the European civilization on this continent. But it also, tragically, marked an ending for the Native American people on this continent. And so it's important to recognize that while you're sitting there celebrating Thanksgiving with your families, there are many people in this country that celebrate it not as a happy day, 
but as a day of mourning. Wherever you find yourself this Thanksgiving, whether that's with family that is still in the church or with family that's out of the church as well, whether that's with friends or just by yourself, take a moment to think about all of the changes that have gone through your life after having left the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or deconstructed religion or become a nuanced member. The benefits of a faith crisis are immense. At the end of it all, you can be a better person and a happier person. I don't want to end this on a sad or melancholy mood. So I'll end this with two TV show recommendations. This last weekend was awesome. Two of my favorite franchises were given live action adaptations over the weekend. The first one I've mentioned before that I'm a huge Wheel of Time fan. The first three episodes of Wheel of Time are out on Amazon Prime, and it is a fantastic, fun watch. I will say that there are a lot of changes from the books, but when I watch an adaptation, the changes for me don't mark a remake like this as worse for not being true to the story. I pay more attention to the characters and the stories that the directors and the writers are doing with those characters, changing mediums from one to another, a book to a movie, brings a lot of challenges, and decisions have to be made in order to make it flow as a story. So allowing for that sort of change, I loved this version of The Wheel of Time. So much fun to watch. And Rosamund Pike is perfect as Moraine. She does so good. The second recommendation, this one is going to be a bit more graphic, so maybe not for the entire audience, but there was an anime from 1998 called Cowboy Bebop. It was also given a live action adaptation on Netflix over the weekend. The whole season dropped. It is fun. It is wild. It is kind of slice of life for these bounty hunters. It's such a great watch. Now, this one got a lot more flack for having a lot of changes as well, but my attitude towards this is the same as with Wheel of Time. I'm fine with changes. I want to see what the directors and the writers want to do with these stories and with these characters and see where where they're taking it. And frankly, a lot of the changes in Cowboy Bebop are really good. Faye Valentine, especially the changes that they made to her character, making her a much stronger woman and not quite so sexualized were excellent decisions. Anyway, (laughs) there's a couple of TV show recommendations for you for this week. Thanks for listening today. I hope that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving week. Oh, and for those in the rest of the world where it's not Thanksgiving, (laughs) a few thoughts of gratitude isn't a bad idea either. And for the Canadian friends that had already passed, uh, sorry, I live in the United States of America, so I hope that you have an excellent day.